Please remain standing as you're able. As we come before God's word, we'll do it likely as Jesus and the disciples would have by reciting a part of the Shema together. If you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The setting is Acts chapter 1. Jesus has spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching and preparing the disciples. And when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times and dates that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, this Sunday we start our second hundred years. I think it's probably time to relocate the church again. But where would you go? I mean, 1604 is pretty crowded now with churches. 281 is becoming that way. Maybe you head up 35. Or maybe you ask Jesus, Jesus, where is it you want your church to be built? Where do you want your church to go? And I think part of the answer from Jesus, he has already given when he spoke to his disciples and he said to them that he wanted them to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, the interesting thing about the ends of the earth is I think of like in my generation, we used to talk about Timbuktu, you know, just something way out there. But the ends of the earth was actually a phrase that was technical. The disciples knew what that meant. It meant Turkey. It meant in their day, Asia Minor. It was a place of incredible paganism, a gross immorality, where the gods were more out of control than the human beings. In fact, one of the interesting things is when Greek and Roman gods crossed the Aegean and got into Asia Minor, uh, they morphed into something worse than they were originally. Example, Artemis. Artemis is the chaste goddess of the hunt for the uh, Romans and the Greeks. She crosses the Aegean, gigs into Ephesus, and she becomes uh, terrible as uh, a goddess, doing things uh, worse than human beings would ever consider doing. That was the ends of the earth. That was Asia Minor. And Jesus was telling the disciples, that's where I want you to go. That's where I want my church. I wondered, was there any precedent for that? Had they ever seen anything that remotely looked like Turkey? like Asia Minor would look when they would get there? And the answer actually is yes. And the answer is yes. There was a town. It was about 32 miles from the area in which Jesus and the disciples normally hung out. And the town was called Caesarea Philippi. It was built by one of Herod's sons, Philip, uh, who wasn't particularly bright. He built the city. He wanted to honor the Roman emperor, so he named it Caesarea. And someone had to say to him, uh, excuse me, there's already a city your father built for the emperor. It's called Caesarea. So he quickly had to make the adjustment, and he added Philippi to it. But this town became a center of all sorts of pagan activities. It was so famous uh, for its immorality and uh, for its uh, ways that were antithetical to God's ways that Jewish mothers wouldn't even let their children get within the city limits of Caesarea Philippi. It was just off limits. 
And yet Jesus marched his disciples more than 30 miles each way to go there. And when he got them there, he asked them this question. Who do people say that I am? And they gave him the answer. And then he says, and who do you say that I am? And if you'll remember, in Matthew 16, Peter gets it right. He says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, well, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because God had to give you that answer. And then he says, and on this rock I'll build my church. And as you know, because we've mentioned it before, for centuries people have been arguing about what that rock is. And, and for uh, Roman Catholics, the rock is Peter himself, that the church is built on Peter. Because as you know, Peter becomes the first bishop of Rome and therefore the first pope. Protestants counter as quickly as they can. No, it's the confession of faith that uh, when any time somebody says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Uh, that's what the church is built on. And, and yet other Protestants say it's just the revelation. Whenever God gives you that insight into who Jesus is, then the church gets built. But the answer is not nearly as esoteric as that as all, uh, at all. What we found uh, from archaeologists and from history is there was in Caesarea of Philippi a big slab of rock, just a giant slab of rock called the rock. And it was on this rock where the Greek god Pan was worshipped. Now, if you remember Pan, Pan was half man, half goat. But what happened, Pan crosses the Aegean, crosses the Mediterranean, gets there, and Pan's out of control. And people worship Pan in large orgies and, and, uh, and disgusting festivals where men consort with men, men consort with women, men, men consort with goats. It's a thing you don't want your children anywhere near. And Jesus points to the place where this is happening and says, that's where I want my church. Build it there. Build it where I am not known. Build it where I am not celebrated. Build it where there's no sense of my kingdom's presence. And that's where they're sent. They are sent to centers where God seems almost absent because of the behavior, the values, the suffering, the pain, the brokenness, any time it seems that God's reign is not fully extended, that's where God's church is supposed to be built. Now, here's the good news this morning. You're not going to have to go very far to find a place like that. All sorts of places in our world are centers of sin, suffering, pain, alienation, poverty, injustice. You just don't have to look very far to find where we are supposed to be. C.S. Lewis, I think, hit it right on the head uh, more than a half century ago when he said the world is actually enemy-occupied territory. That most of the world really operates uh, outside of what God would desire for the world. Now, let me add this real quickly. That doesn't mean the world is the enemy. We all learn this verse as children. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Why does it seem like God loves the world, but the church doesn't? Why does it seem like we get to centers of poverty or, or alienation or brokenness or sin, and we start haranguing the people who are there about how terrible they are and how terrible their ways are and how God's going to get them, and, and we cast judgment upon them? The enemy is not the world and not the people. Those are people who live under the spell and who live under the power of the enemy. Paul said our battle in this world uh, isn't against flesh and blood. There's a spirit that rules it, a spirit that wants sin, a spirit that wants suffering, a spirit that wants poverty. That's 
the enemy. And people who are struggling, whether it be on that rock or wherever they are in their life, they are simply prisoners of that enemy. What kind of liberating army would march into a POW camp and start injuring and shooting all the prisoners? Doesn't happen. They march in and they liberate those who are imprisoned. And that's what the church is called to do. To go to places of sin and suffering and liberate, not oppress, not harangue, not judge. That's not our job. Our job is to take the love of God to places where God's kingdom doesn't seem to be uh, in operation at that place. And we're sent there to love in those situations. And here's the better news. Good news, you don't have to go far to find it. The better news is it'll work out. Jesus said this, he said, I'm going to build on this rock my church. And then he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, that's also uh, actually something that uh, that's based in geography. Right next to this rock where Pan was worshipped was a big uh, crevice, an opening in the ground. There was a spring. There was also gas would escape. Now, Josephus said that that uh, you could actually plumb line in a sense down 900 feet. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. But because people saw gas escape from sort of the middle earth up into the air, they assumed that that was actually the gateway to hell. So they called it the gates of Hades. It was actually a physical location. But Jesus uses that as a word picture and he says that gate will not prevail against the church. Now, I have spent decades of my life misunderstanding that verse. I always thought that meant is, well, if I hold on, it's going to be okay. That the evil one is not going to overrun me. That, that, that I can stand up with God's help. But actually, that, I guess because I was raised in Corpus Christi where hurricanes would come through periodically. You know, when you knew a hurricane was coming, when it was imminent, you knew it would spawn tornadoes, there would be high winds. And you look for a place where you thought you could hide and it wouldn't get you. And that's sort of the understanding I had about the church. It's a place where we hide and then the evil one doesn't get us and then we survive. That's not what Jesus said at all. He said the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. In other words, friends, you're the hurricane. You're the tornado that Satan doesn't want to deal with. You are the force that sin and poverty and injustice is most afraid of. And you're supposed to be on the attack with God's love. With a helping hand, with a listening ear, with an encouraging word. That's you rattling the cages, rattling the gates of hell itself. That's what we're called to do. We're not in a defensive mode. We're in an offensive mode going out, going out of this building with the love of Christ wherever the kingdom doesn't seem to be fully realized because of suffering, illness, sin, pain, poverty, wherever they are. This summer, while I was on vacation, I did some uh, reading about uh, World War II. And one of the things I read about, uh, you probably already knew this, is one of the uh, tragic mistakes that the Japanese made at Pearl Harbor is they didn't get the U.S. carriers, the aircraft carriers, because they weren't at Pearl Harbor at the time. So the United States was able to fairly quickly respond by moving what force they had because they had some place from which to launch it. And I thought about that because I think so often we think of the church as sort of our own Pearl Harbor and we'll stay here and maybe we'll be safe if enough of us huddle together and, and it's kind of idyllic just like Hawaii and it'll just be fine. But that's not us. We're not a port. We are an aircraft carrier. 
We are on the move to be launched at wherever there is pain, wherever there is need, wherever people are without hope. That's where we launch. That's where we go. And we've launched all over. Look at the bulletin today. Uh, launching toward uh, the homeless at uh, Haven for Hope this afternoon. On um, A couple times a week, uh, folks from our church are launched to another side of town with backyard ministry to mentor children who, who really are at risk. Others have been launched internationally across the border to orphans and people in need at Piedras Negras. Others have been launched much further south. We sent three trips this year to a very uh, poverty-stricken area of Costa Rica. And then a few have been even as launched as far as Africa, East Africa. Uh, but that's, that's what we are. We launch. We send off. And wherever there's pain, wherever there's sin, wherever don't, people don't know about Jesus and his love, that's where we go. That's who we are. That's what we do. As the old saying goes, the ship is probably safest in the port, but that's not what it's meant for. And so we go. And we sail wherever there's need, wherever there's pain, wherever there's sin. That's where we go. That's where the battle is. Now, before you go in that battle, I want to tell you a few things, though. The first one is this. If I were to summarize the entire New Testament that I hope you'll listen to over the next 40 days, I would summarize it in two words. Come and go. Come to Jesus, come to the body of Jesus, and then go in to a hurting world. But both of them are needed. When we try to go out on Jesus' behalf, uh, without gathering with Jesus and gathering with his people in community, as we're doing this morning, we are doomed not to be very effective and we must not only come, though we almost we must go. If we only come and gather here and never go out where there is need or suffering or pain, then our spiritual muscles are atrophied. And we've not lived up to the very purpose for which we were created by God. Both are required. Come and go. Second thing I want you to know is once you do this, there'll be trouble. Because no one likes anyone beating on their gates. No one likes their cage rattled, and the evil one likes it uh, least of all. This sermon may sound familiar to you because I've preached variations of it over the last 11 years. And I want to tell you, the first time I did it was November 14, 1999. And we had, in the, within the next seven days, six people in this church died. Uh, three people were banging on my office door, uh, hoping and demanding that I would quit for different reasons. I mean, things just started... To get crazy. Because he doesn't like anyone rattling his cage. So know this. When you go out there to offer help, there will be opposition. Sometimes opposition from the very people you're trying to help. But it will be there. But know this third thing. While the battle rages, the war has already been won. The war's over. People are still in suffering and people are still in pain and there are still children in poverty. But the war itself is over. It's the battle that rages. When I was reading about the Battle of Britain, one of the things I learned this summer, what you probably knew this one as well, is that Churchill knew that once the United States entered the conflict, it was over. Now, it might be a matter of years and unfortunately loss of a lot of life, but he knew essentially it was over. Once the United States came in on the side of Great Britain, the battle would rage but the war was over. Jesus has already weighed in. He's already sighed in. This thing is won. We are fighting the cleanup battles. Now, they're real. And there are people who are actually hurting. 
But you need to know, no matter how hard it gets, you've already won. My first church was near a place called Almito, Texas. Almito, Texas is famous because it was the site of one of the very last battles of the Civil War between the Union and Confederacy. The problem is the battle was fought more than two months after Lee surrendered at Appomattox and Johnson had surrendered uh, in, the, uh, in the home uh, in Bennett Place in Durham, North Carolina. Two months later, they're still fighting. They had no idea it was over. Friends, I want you to go out and fight and fight with love. But never forget that the war has already been won.